What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project Podcast. My name is Austin Jardine and a happy freaking Monday to you all. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend, enjoyed uh, your Father's Day, and uh, for some of you, maybe a long weekend as well. Um, before we get into it, though, if you don't mind doing me a huge favor, leave a, uh, a rating, a review, subscribe to the show, follow me on the Instagrams. It means the absolute world to me to uh, continue growing the show and uh, gives me the warm and fuzzies, uh, knowing that you guys like what, what, uh, what we're putting out there into the world. But before we get started, uh, for those of you maybe new to the show, uh, joining for the first time, maybe forgotten, uh, my mantra here, uh, my cute little uh, tagline, is uh, growth through story and strength through community. And what I mean by that is uh, I sit down with folks and I have them share their life stories with me, hopefully in a way that gives you some insight, something to chew on, um, you know, maybe something to uh, motivate you or inspire you or help you uh, through a tough time or maybe find some uh, direction, whatever the case may be. So we talk about a variety of different things. And today, talking with Danique about her life story and then Leashes of Valor and maybe some ways that uh, either they can help you or you can help them as well. Um, so that's kind of what I do. Uh, I do my best to really let the interviewees share their story, uh, not so much focusing on myself or a random topic necessarily, so much as really a, a directed conversation about what somebody's doing and how they got to where they're at. So really, that's my hope is to provide you, you know, maybe some community or, uh, or something to tap into uh, to help push you forward or uh, get you involved. So with all of that being said, uh, that's, that's my goal. That's what I like to do. Be sure to uh, subscribe to stay up to date. Uh, go to the website, VanguardStories.com. Hit me up on the Instagrams. I'd love to connect with you all. Um, but I have also been extremely fortunate uh, over the years um, in a variety of ways. You know, I've been doing this podcast uh, for a little over a year now, but to have partnered with uh, several companies to kind of help push me forward and uh, and get connected even further. And one of them is actually Black Rifle Coffee, of which I love. I love caffeine. It's terrible. I think. I used to be a full pot a day person by myself. Now I think I'm sitting right around three or four, which might still equate to a full pot, just not all at once. So I don't really know. Either way, I'm a big fan of Black Rifle's web or a website, their website too. But what I'm going to say is if you use code Vanguard on their website, you actually get 20% off, including their grinds coffee packets and merch. I actually was uh, in the market this weekend for some new uh, gym shirts. All of mine are pretty beat to hell at this point. So I ordered uh, a gym shirt and then the coffee grinds. They're the, the little grinds packets because I like to have those while I'm at the gym. I don't know why I like the flavor of them, but these are the first times that I'm trying the Black Rifle grinds packs. And I'm super excited. My code worked on them. So be sure to go pick up either a subscription, some coffee, some merch, whatever. Works on most things. Use code Vanguard and get you 20% off, which is nuts. And considering most of us are going to be out in the world now. I mean, uh, now that uh, it's summertime, it's time to get outside. You don't want to forget your caffeine. Might as well get a subscription, for instance, save 20%. But uh, be sure to use code Vanguard on Black Rifle's website. Uh, and I think as far as announcements and sponsors, that's where I'm at today. I hope you all have a wonderful day. And we're going to roll an awesome episode with Danique. And I will catch you next time. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. My name is Austin Jardine, and I'm excited because uh, I'm on the phone with Danique, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, Leashes of Valor and uh, kind of the life that you've lived, Danique. And I'm hoping that uh, 
I can keep my energy up because it's been, we were just talking that we both struggled through we're recording Wednesday and I just ate dinner because we're recording a little bit later. So I'm riding the, uh, the chicken high right now. We're going to see how long this lasts, but I'm excited. So if uh, you don't mind, maybe before uh, I steal an intro, do you mind just uh, sharing a little bit about you, what you're up to, and then I will take notes and ask uh, some questions. Super stoked to be on with you and talk to you. So I'm Danique. I'm one of the co-founders and president of Leashes of Valor. We're a veteran-founded and run nonprofit that provides service dogs to veterans free of charge. Um, we're about five years old as an organization. And before that, all of us served in different capacities in the military. So my service dates back to 02, inspired by 9-11. Um, and I left the service in 2007 and then fumble fucked my way around transition. Um, that's the kindest way of putting it. Uh, had a mini midlife crisis. Uh, I was law enforcement in the military and specifically always wanted to do canine, left the military, actually ended up in cosmetology school. Um, <laughs> okay, and that's a big up, turn. <laughs> yes, uh, it gets even better. Um, then ended up an unemployed military spouse hairdresser in Syracuse um, who went to the to the Veterans Administration uh, trying to use my GI Bill to just, you know, find a job, find something. Um, and yeah, so I went to Syracuse University and that's really where I stumbled into service dogs um, through another veteran in a veterans organization. And through that academically, you know, in a brief synopsis ended up in veterans policy, specifically service dogs. And then from there, I've always worked in the service dog industry, ultimately culminating in founding my own organization. So that's how we get to present day. Wow. And I'm going to pause and let you peel that onion. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, if you can see um, my, my note-taking style is uh, I'm jotting down things with arrows so that I can remember where I'm trying to go because holy shit, that's a lot. <laughs> so let's start 2001. In 2002, you said that you were inspired, um, more or less, inspired is probably a crass word, right, to join because of 9-11. Have you, did you come from a military family? Were you like, hey, this is something I need to do? Or what was the inspiration there? Um, I mean, just to go down the first rabbit hole, I, I was raised in Germany, so I was dual citizen. Um, so I'm not full-blooded, 100% American. So I was I was raised in Germany until I was 18 years old, came to the States and then was, you know, a girl going to college in Florida in Tampa and then 9-11 happened. So basically my whole world was turned upside down. I had no actual relationship with like veterans, the military, um, even national defense, like terrorism, like all that was so far from my day-to-day -day life or concerns, if that makes sense. Like sure. it was just a, a very eye-opening adulting moment aside from the the actual impact of what you're witnessing um and i lived right by tampa where president bush was that day so it was somewhat law enforcement impactful locally um and that really that turned it around for me where i wanted law enforcement and the local law enforcement agency wouldn't take me because i smoked pot in germany and i had a whole bunch of records in german that nobody wanted to translate um, so it was a difficult journey to get into the local police academy, which ultimately led me to the recruiter's office because I had such a desire to serve in uniform um, that if the local uh, 
agencies wouldn't take me, maybe the military would. And my, my American father had served in um, the Navy during Vietnam. So yeah. I ended up at the Navy recruiter's office and they were able to promise me law enforcement in my contract. And that's how I ended up really committing to the Navy because I really wanted to be police more than in the military, if that makes sense. Sure. So maybe another couple of questions around that, right? So one, <laughs> and, and it, this one might be a little weird, but like the, the smoke and weed stuff, like I feel like that's a common thing now, right? And I understand that law enforcement makes it difficult if you smoke weed, right? Knowing that I don't really know if there's any long-term harm effects of it, right? But I guess, how did you kind of navigate that as far as working with local law enforcement and then kind of transitioning that to military? And I ask in kind of like a weird way so that if somebody is maybe in your same shoes, how did you navigate that to offer as advice, if that question makes sense? formulating as I was talking. Uh, totally makes sense. And realistically, it was actually a really hard lesson on integrity for me mm -hmm. because I thought I was doing the right thing, disclosing that many eons ago at this point, it had been six years since I had smoked pot, you know, and I, I was employed somewhere that did drug testing. So I was able to prove drug-free employment and everything. But the fact that I, that I disclosed something honestly, and then for that, disclosure um, was penalized to the point that I didn't get the job. And then the military recruiter literally tells me, lie, 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 deny, 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 make <laughs> counter accusations. You know what I mean? Yep. He's like, just don't mention it. So that was my first lesson on <clears throat> almost like what I want to say is society's morals dictated by, by doctrine. You know, like they're saying weed is bad. And because you smoke weed, policy says we can't hire you, even though I'd been smoke-free for six years, you know, like there was no human factor. There was no in-between bureaucracy. Um, and the fact that I was literally punished for being honest uh, was a really shitty, weird lesson to learn. Yeah, that's interesting. So I have <clears throat> sort of a, a similar experience, I guess you could say. So like, and, and I'm, it's kind of fun to draw this parallel a little bit because I sympathize, right? Because when I was graduating from college, I wanted to go Marine Corps and then I wanted to, you know, commission. That's what I really wanted to do. But, you know, I'd seen years of therapy and all this stuff. Right. And same kind of thing where it was like, Hey, I'm going to be honest, integrity. Obviously that's something that everybody wants and stands for. You give it to them. And then it's like, well, you know, so I ended up, you know, not making it, but it's just interesting that I learned that same lesson where it's like, you know, integrity is great valued, but society norms morals stuff like that right it comes into play so that's interesting how did you navigate that the lie 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 more or less i mean like were you cool with it or was that sort of difficult for you um i, I think i made peace with the fact that basically the information was irrelevant to what i was doing you know what i mean like this is not need to know information for mm -hmm. what i'm trying to do that is old news yeah, uh, that is basically the old version. Of me. He was a, I was a fucking teenager. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Thank God there was no Internet or cell phones when I grew up. I'm just saying. Yeah. So right. <laughs> the fact that I was self-disclosing on something, let's just consider that a privilege. Right. Um, I don't. It probably set the path for a lot more disappointments on the lack of integrity in the real adult world that yeah. I didn't realize existed. I think that was the first bubble that was burst, honestly. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to know, right, is um, the world is not necessarily as it seems. 
And it doesn't mean you have to lie to, to keep up with it. I think you have to find your path of ethics um, and what you're comfortable with. You know, if that makes sense. It like does. It does. Now that I work in mental health, like the stories I hear from people, like that shit's to the grave shit. So, yeah. oh yeah. Like oh your yeah. Integrity is everything. So you just have to, to know what you stand for and, right. and stick with that. That's true. Yeah. Sticking to your defined morals. Anyways. Yeah. That could be super philosophical. We could totally <laughs> rabbit hole it, but uh, okay. So maybe to not rabbit hole. Why, uh, why policing? You wanted to serve in uniform, serve in military police. Why that route? Um, more specific. So I, I was raised in Germany my whole life and mm -hmm. my family is half American, meaning they're half American veterans and they're half German veterans. So oh, nice. Okay. Um, they fought on both sides of World War II. Yep. And uh, so very different appreciation of service slash talked about it. Okay. Um, and then in Florida, I saw a female police officer protecting a synagogue the, the day that 9-11 happened on my way home from work. Okay. Um, and so I think that showed me the world impact that like something that happened in New York is affecting us standing guard in front of religious houses, specifically symbolically a synagogue for Germans that was like, whoa, we're at that level. Um, so I think it really drove home the point on how serious this event was and where that really changed things for everybody in the world. Yeah. And I just thought her role so small was still um, something of purpose. Like she looked like she was really doing that job with pride and significance and like it, her standing there fucking mattered that day. Right. So I really wanted to be that person. Okay. So I think that's really what drove it. And then my father served in Vietnam. So let's just say he never spoke of it. Um, and then my grandfather on the American side was in the Marine Corps and was in the Pacific. So he definitely came home with some subscriptions to issues is what we're going to call it. Yep. Yep. And on the German side, I had one uncle that was in the U-boat Navy. One uncle didn't make it home from Stalingrad. And then my grandfather spent most of his time in jail because he refused to support the Nazis. <laughs> um, so, you know, but a very different relationship to, you know, America as the liberator. Um, so, you know, that, that's how America, my, Amer my German family felt about the Americans. However, my American family had very strong other feelings about my German family. Yeah, that's interesting. That, so you come from a pretty healthy family of resilient um, and uh, stubborn and um, proud people it sounds like <laughs> yeah sugarcoating <laughs> things probably no that's awesome and then the navy uh was uh from did you say your dad then yeah yeah okay so big navy pride then go 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 navy beat army um honestly i feel like my my dad doesn't talk about his service in the navy very much at all he rarely shows photos he rarely discusses any details um, he shows more pride in my grandfather's service okay. than his own. So I'm sure there's some generational issues there that we still need to unpack. Uh, now that I work with so many more veterans, I definitely see some red flags that need to be addressed. But um, it, it was paying homage to him, but it wasn't influenced by him. Like, I don't see him show any favoritism or pride in the Navy whatsoever, honestly. Yeah. Okay. So then when you started in the Navy and you made it through, uh, 
I don't know, is it, is it called like military police Academy? I mean, is it kind of the same verbiage? Um, they call it master at arms school. It okay. always felt like such an oxymoron because we are nothing if not master <laughs> at arms. Um, and it's in San Antonio. So for all of the Navy, all of our law enforcement training um, for the, the basic stuff is down in San Antonio on an Air Force base. Oh, okay. Well, that's funny. A little also ironic. <laughs> it's very bougie. I promise you. We straight from boot camp to A school in San Antonio where we had housekeeping and a salad bar. Like it was nice. <laughs> that's awesome. So did, uh, did it meet expectations as you started working through, you know, every post that you had, did you kind of get that oh, sense of fulfillment? God, no, no. <laughs> no. Oh, I mean, Contextually, I will I will say I I went into law enforcement in 2002, March 2002. Like we were just ramping up and just dumping all these baby sailors out of boot camp into the police academy. It's like super troopers on steroids. Um, so you have a whole bunch of immature 18 year olds and you're putting them loose on the streets. You know what I mean? And not just law enforcement. Now we're talking like anti-terrorism force protection capabilities, which the academy wasn't teaching at the time. So they had not changed the curriculum when we went through. So we were still very much a domestic violence response, traffic stops, um, like street cop stuff. Sure. Uh, which now has thankfully changed a lot more and the capabilities are much more geared toward what military and uniformed personnel should be doing um, on a much larger scale instead of being a rent-a-cop, especially when we have Department of Defense contractors doing it on most bases. So we were extremely ill-prepared. Um, and honestly, I mean, the military overall was completely overwhelmed in, in 2000 with between wanting to start an invasion, not quite starting it then, and then actually starting it and ramping things up from, from recruiting to pushing people through boot camp to getting them in their jobs when they're clueless little babies. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty scary that we all made it through the way we did. Country made it through with all of us basically standing guard, like kudos. There were some days like I was questionable. Yeah, yeah. So, what uh I guess <clears throat> so obviously you made it and maybe underprepared, but I imagine there was probably a few things that either you picked up or had going into it that helped you along the way. What were maybe some of the skills that you're like, this actually saved my ass a time or two? I mean, thankfully, A, we were paired with senior guys and especially reservists. Like we had some crotchety old fuckers. And I mean that with all the love and endearment <laughs> that had such a tremendous so amount resentment. of knowledge. <laughs> like knowledge of life. Some of these guys were in Vietnam. You know what I mean? Like that's who you want mentoring you when you're going on the street. Yeah, right. Uh, so the privilege of learning from experienced people and senior people that were really there and graciously sharing their knowledge and making sure us baby cops were you know on the road not being a hazard to society and I mean honestly I grew up in in Germany so I had a much different life experience and I think that while in some ways definitely gave me some cultural shocks here uh prepared me in a lot of other ways like I was 16 years old when Kosovo was going off at its finest and people in our high school were getting drafted by their home country so people are just leaving school from one semester to the next to never return. Uh, families were torn apart. You know, they were originally Yugoslavian and then all of a sudden cousins aren't speaking anymore. Divorces start happening because one is Kosovar Albanian and one is um, Croatian. So it was 
you know, the nineties in Germany were real gangster. It was just <laughs> a different world. Like it was post cold war, you know, we're the center country that everything traffics through from East to West. So being a teenager in the nineties in, in Frankfurt, Germany was really exciting and taught me a lot of life skills. Um, that made me definitely more mature. When I yeah. finally got in the military, I was not like a fresh kid out of high school with no clue of life. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of a, a good way to ask this without being just lame, but like <laughs> being in Germany during the gangster era of the nineties and then coming to the United States where I imagine, you know, I was young in the nineties, what I can only imagine as some pretty immature, inexperienced, uncultured people, right? Like, I guess relative to your peers, what, what set you apart as far as skills, knowledge, way of thinking? Um, I mean, I definitely become like, I became the team mom to a lot of my peers, just from the <laughs> maturity aspect. And I, you know, honestly, just pulling the girl card there. So, um, I don't know if it gave me an advantage because I had such a culture shock. Like there, there are certain things where I definitely actually struggled a lot more in the military. Okay. Um, like the, the entire concept of, yeah, Germany's just so anti-military. You know what I mean? Like the, it is such opposites. I had to skip school in high school in Germany to visit my friend when he graduated from German boot camp um, really? in the Bundeswehr because it was so not supported. Like, God forbid you ever went to support a graduation. Like, you don't talk about that shit. Huh. Um, so it's just a a different era that that even people are prideful that you serve was a whole new experience. Like that people are enthusiastic that you're in the military and that you're, you know, serving your country. That's not uh, something that in, in, in my world was ever discussed before. You know what I mean? Like you didn't talk about if you were serving, if you were a reservist or if you got drafted, you didn't share that if you didn't have to. Interesting. So, and I know that we kind of talked about it a little bit, but having come from that life experience to having the sense of feeling like you want to serve in uniform, how did you manage or kind of navigate that dichotomy? I guess I feel like those are two significant swings of perspective, right? Um, I mean, I had to I like consciously surrender for my security clearance. I had to like give up my, my German citizenship and like, you know, the whole passport thing. So it was, mm -hmm. it was a little bit killing off one identity, if that makes sense. Like you're really like, saying fuck you to your one of your home countries in a way okay. um but the significance of 9-11 and like the trajectory i was on just felt so right like there was no hesitation like you could feel the emotion but there was no hesitation in the choice of it mm -hmm. um yeah i think that's that's it yeah yeah and i asked just because it's it's interesting right i mean so i uh i don't know i i find things like that very interesting where you know people experience like different obviously which is why i've started the podcast right is you learn so much from people's different experiences so okay well i won't i won't hyper focus hyper fixate on that so um throughout i guess your time in the navy um i don't really know kind of navy process or anything i don't have any you know military experience but one thing that I'm always interested in is, uh, you know, what would be something that you would wish maybe that you would have known before going into 
the Navy or would like to go back and tell younger you or somebody that wants to go and be an MP2? Oh, shit, man. That's like mm-hmm. a deep it's loaded it's one of my favorite man i'll ask another one later too but it's one of my favorite loaded questions Uh, i mean i think that integrity thing is is a a good one to stick with your i don't want to call it a brand but who you are and what you stand for the choices you make like that's with you for a lifetime so whatever choices you make like be at peace with it but, but choose your integrity, if that makes sense. So um, I'll share an example. My first duty station, uh, one of the girls I was stationed with, so we're all MPs, and her mother comes to visit and starts smoking pot in the barracks in front of all of us. And one of the supervisors confronts several of us on the smoke deck about it, like, is there pot smoking going, you know, like this was reported to us. And you bet your fucking ass if actually directly confronted and I have to actually answer the question, I ain't lying for you. (laughs) I absolutely said, yes, that's what's happening. And um, it cost me several friends at my first command. I mean, the story is much more nuanced and there's way more to it. But in the end, like it was a choice I had to make is I'm going to either I'm going to shut the fuck up and protect my friends or I stick with I'm directly asked if it comes out later, like. That's my brand. That's my integrity forever gone with the leadership that I lied. Um, So I chose to tell the truth. And I mean, same thing with when I was asked if I smoked pot and I didn't get the job. So, (laughs) you know, a certain on point integrity in life really matters to me. And I think that's that's transcended all of that. Okay. Okay. That's great advice. I do like the uh, the brand. No matter what bad things happen, there is... You, you got to live with your choices and you got to make those choices with integrity. Yeah. Yeah. I like, uh, I feel like it's kind of funny. So the integrity piece, like the use of the word integrity is interesting now, right? Like I feel like it's a very charged word. Whereas I think if you use the word brand in relation, I think for this generation, it probably sounds or like it sings a little bit better, you know, like it's like, Oh my brand oh yeah that's right you know like it's kind of goofy so okay so by this time then i mean are you uh transitioning out retiring so i think you said what 2002 to 2008 two yeah 2007 2007 okay so what was the catalyst for hey it's time to move on i'm gonna go experience uh normal you know less than uh exciting life um so I was med boarded, meaning I was finally found to have too many injuries that allowed me to continue serving on active duty. So I was basically kicked out of the military. Um, and it was hard. It was a difficult choice because my chief medical officer actually like just straight up asked me, he's like, I don't think you're going to make it. Meaning he like, I was absolutely suicidal at that point, like okay. uh, ready to eat a gun or like somebody just take me out of my misery. Um, so in that whole risky living uh, behavior phase two. So the chief basically said, I don't think you're going to make it if you don't like get out of this environment and this job. And so he basically signed me out on medical paper saying she needs to medically get out of the military. So I was admin sept under medical conditions in 2007 and it was heart wrenching identity crisis. Cause I really thought I was going to do 20 and I thought they took law enforcement from me, you know, like it was just 
you know, and I got a letter basically saying you have 30 days to get out. So it was okay. like all happening very fast. Um, so that super, super sucked. <laughs> There's no really <laughs> other way to put it. Yeah. Uh, so you have like this scramble crisis of your entire social networks being ripped away from you, meaning medical housing, like all of the social coverage you have as a military member is going to be gone in 30 days. Um, and I left with no benefits. So it's not like I was like retired with anything. They basically just said, no, you're just done. Okay. So I had to turn around and like go file with the VA and plead my case and file for education benefits. And um, so I started trying to go back to school and fumble fuck my way around there and ended up in cosmetology school because my voc rehab counselor recommended it somehow and I, I really can't say how I went with the flow there like here we are <laughs> it <laughs> happened <laughs> yeah but maybe I needed that type of completely opposite environment to just kind of lick my wounds for a while um meaning you know the salon environment is very opposite of camis and gun belts all day every day sure so it, it wasn't bad it was definitely odd mm. But it almost allowed me to pause and just figure things out for a while while learning a trade. And honestly, it is a trade. So I ain't hating it. I just don't have the personality to actually work in a salon. It turns out like <laughs> zero, zero. <laughs> That's a special type of personality. Yes. And I just don't, just don't have it at all. Yeah. I just wasn't happy there. Okay. So I'm going to go back a little bit if that's cool with you. So in kind of the... 30 day period and leading up to it, right? You're having a pretty hard time, suicidal thoughts. Everybody's worried about you. What, and only as personal as you want it to get, what did that look like? And how were you able to kind of take this whole kind of clusterfuck of a situation and take advantage of it? And I'm asking in the same vein, right? That if somebody else is like, Hey, I'm ready to eat a gun too. And they're listening to you right now, right? What, what did you do to help yourself or find people to help you not eat the gun? Um, so first of all, the wet blanket of fuck will go away again. Um, so don't eat that gun. There is um, a bow on every pig, I promise you. For starters. And for me, so it wasn't that I wasn't suicidal the last 30 days. Like, honestly, aside from panicking about getting basically thrown out of the military, I was hugely relieved. Um, so I was at a really bad command and it was actually my third toxic command in a row. So I basically just had over five years of shitty experiences in the military is what we're going to collectively call that. Um, so I was basically just at my last rope mentally and maintaining in that kind of environment. Um, and it was to the point where other commands were trying to intervene because they saw how my leadership was treating me. So they were even going against doctor's orders. Um, so it was, it was a really obvious, really public dick measuring contest is what I'm going to call it. And so culminating in the chief medical officer saying, I don't think you can sustain this kind of environment. Like that's why he had me basically medically sent out of the military so he could get me out of that environment because I, I really just was at my wits end. Um, and that was from not being allowed to, to receive mental health treatment, um, not getting any of the support. So it was you know, the opposite of what you would envision supportive leadership being. And that's ultimately what 
what did it and for me the hardest thing was is because the chief asked me it almost felt like i was giving up so for years i really struggled with the fact that i gave up on the military okay like, i felt like i tapped out um so that took a long time to to recover from so honestly getting out of a toxic environment is really important especially if you're at suicidal ideation it's definitely not helpful to stay in an environment that makes that wet blanket of fuck continue. Mm -hmm. um, finding purpose and being around people that you can rely on, even if you're not sharing the entire narrative or wanting to open up, if that makes sense. Like I had some really amazing people in canine that were just incredible human beings. And I mean, just little gestures, like helping me move out of my apartment after I got out, you know, like little things like that, like people just showing up, like stick around people that show up for you. Um, but yeah, suicide is one of those fucking shitty conversations that, you know, having had those thoughts and feelings, it's really hard to articulate them, but you definitely can share that sentiment with other people who are feeling that. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been down that route, you know, like my OCD uh, takes plenty of other forms that get more frustrating, but it's never taken me down that rabbit hole. Um, but one one other question that I have is when you hit those thoughts or when you started to process out, right? I imagine that's equivalent to some sort of rock bottom, right? How did you, I guess, mentally get yourself to the point of it, of accepting that you need to move on and then also i guess pushing yourself past the point of saying hey this is toxic and i do need to change so maybe two questions there can you repeat the second one just because the internet broke up we yeah yeah so maybe my first question is um you know you are having these suicidal thoughts you're in a very toxic environment how did you build yourself up enough to move on because that is a very difficult decision to make, particularly when everything around you is bad. Um, I'm not, I'm not really good at like losing, if that makes sense. So, uh, <laughs> it's one of those, I'm not going to let them win just out of fucking spite. I'm the kind of person who endure all kinds of things just to not um, be the loser on something. And really in the end, because it was specific people that were being toxic, it became that mentality of, I'm not gonna let you win. Yeah. Like, fuck you. Like, I'm gonna stay alive and fucking make something of myself just to fucking spite you. So, I mean, it's petty, but it kept me alive. So, you know, what, yeah. whatever floats your boat and gets you going, honestly. It's not stupid if it works, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then, uh, as you started to, uh, kind of rebuild and lick your wounds, like you said, what, what kept you going? I mean, did you have a plan other than going with the flow to cosmetology school or was it kind of just like whatever happens happens? Um, I'll be honest. I almost moved back to Germany. Really? Yeah. So I went to, as soon as I got out, I went to Germany for almost three months to visit my friend that I hadn't seen um, in a while. And 
I needed to be completely away from the American culture. It was very holistic for me to not be around the rah, rah, rah. Cause I got out in 07, which was like really bad times for our military and they deserved all the support. I just didn't want to hear about it at the time. Yeah. So it was very cathartic to just be away completely insulated from anything that had to do with that in a completely different world. And I almost wanted to stay there, but that's almost like chasing a high. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it wasn't realistic to just run away to another country and be like, that's going to make it all go away. Cause in the end, like what's, what's fucked up in your soul and the wounds you're carrying with you, they're traveling with you anyway. So if only, I, right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I knew I had to do something education wise or find a way to make an income. You know what I mean? Like in the end, it was just chasing some kind of you know, the, the basic needs that need to be met on the pyramid, like how are you going to feed yourself? How are you going to house yourself? Oh, the internet cut and it just, it got back now. Yeah, we have a bad storm going here. Uh, okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can totally hear Okay, you. okay, so it cut off uh, pyramid is where we left. Yeah, so basically just trying to meet your basic needs of putting a roof over your head, you know, food on the table, like, you know, your economic needs. And um, I originally thought that cosmetology would be that, like, it, I thought it was a trade, so you can do it anywhere. And I was dating a military guy at the time, so I assumed that whole military spouse life, you need a more mobile job. So that seemed like a good short-term plan, and I honestly didn't have a long-term vision at the time on what I thought my life was going to look like. like. I'm not sure I was able to, to see far that far ahead at that time. Right. Right. So then what, I guess I'm, I'm looking at my notes and my handwriting is absolutely atrocious because you went to cosmetology school after that, or you went to cosmet cos cosmetology school. That's a hard word to say. Um, what, what did you do after that then? Because it's a short-term plan. You said, sorry, I got thrown with the storm and everything. What happens next? Yes. So I went to cosmetology school and right when I graduated, one of my friends in Germany um, tragically passed away. Uh, so in between jobs, I went back to Germany for a funeral. Um, and right, right then my fiance slash future husband got orders to be forward deployed to Diego Garcia, which is in the Indian Ocean. So he was going to be gone for two years on a boat that's anchored outside of an island in the Indian Ocean, which is not a bad gig for him, except for there's nothing out there. Um, <clears throat> but for me, I was in Seattle, Washington as a hairdresser, and I just lost a very close friend. So I'm like, I'm not staying on this coast. I don't know anybody over here. So I moved closer to family in Syracuse. And uh, that's where I ended up talking to a voc rehab counselor who handles voc Vocational rehabilitation, which is something covered um, by the VA for people who have certain levels of disability okay. to cover their like retraining to a different job. And I was an unemployed hairdresser and military spouse needing help. And I ended up at Syracuse University. And I promise you, I ended up at like the night classes. I had to prove my way in because my GPA <laughs> showing up was not something they were looking at. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, you can pick the trash up. <laughs> Yeah, so I really had to start at like university college and take night classes and prove that I was capable of actually finishing a college course and um, really fell in love with going to school. Like, yeah. holy shit, did I fell, fall in love with that shit? Like, I'm a secret nerd. Didn't know it um, until I got there, but 
so fell in love with going to college, spending all the GI Bill money I could. Like I treated that shit like, you know, March Madness brackets. Like I was aligning classes that would count toward as many degrees as possible. Like I'm going to get everything out of this. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. Like I fucking loved it. Um, so I got an undergraduate in military history and German language literature and linguistics. And as weird as that sounds, then <laughs> it surprisingly actually has come in really strong in what I currently do with veterans. Okay. And I never would have seen that coming. So how does it play in then? Cause like, most can... literature is post-war literature in German, meaning these are all people that survived trauma, survived the war, either as a uh, combatant or non-combatant. So post-trauma recovery, um, post-conflict reconstruction and resolution is all what I focused all my degrees on. And so reading in history books, honestly, how previous generations have overcome, but also how they have articulated what they have been through has been tremendously helpful in and basically working with people where I don't have their experience, but I've read enough about it to, to be of empathy, if that makes sense. It does. It do, did you plan on, on that or was it just like by pure happenstance? Pure happenstance. And only in the last recent years have I really realized how much I'm drawing on like, oh my God, I'm reading about like Sledge and like some, you know, just some of the famous literature from World War II. And I mean, having met some of these legends now um, has just taught me so much to working with current conflict veterans and the post-conflict recovery, like yeah. unfucking the shit that you've been through. So how did that come to be then? How did you go from just studying it to saying, okay, great, I genuinely want to work and help and be in the mental health arena and applying it? Uh, in, col in college, one of my canine friends who was instrumental in me getting out of the military alive and safely, um, he passed away in a car accident. And I, re I reunited with a lot of my unit from my last command at that funeral. And it was like, bring you to your knees, uh, crying, cathartic, like really good. It was a great reunion. These were all people that were really close to each other. Um, and that really like gave me a turn in where I was going in life and how much I missed those people. Like until then I'd really turned my back on the veterans and military community. Like I couldn't give two shits about that. Yeah. I was there to spend my GI bill and like whatevs, but I had missed them so much and it was so cathartic to see them at that funeral. And like, that's really what even got me through the funeral, especially when it played taps, like the boys were holding me up. It was awful. Um, so that really turned it for me. And somehow I knew I had to get back into the veterans community. So I ended up going to the veterans club where I met that other girl that was getting a service dog. And because Steve had been a canine handler, I'm like, oh my God, canine. And I just lost Steve. Like I need to, I need to follow this. So it was a little bit from a broken heart and grief that I pursued that. And I threw a full scholarship to another master's program <laughs> to the wayside to, to do public administration and policy, um, which sounds really, really boring and is really hard to explain what it actually does. But <laughs> okay, it has something to do with um, making laws and shit in DC and it was so interesting and I loved every second of it. Okay, so then I think we've probably glazed over then how, how and where and why did the canines come in? 
Uh, honestly, Steve dying did something for me. Um, it was my senior year of undergrad. And as soon as that happened, I reconnected with veterans and I somehow was recommended this program. And the one of the professors in the program was a retired admiral. And somehow I just, everything I wrote was on canine policy, working dogs, special operations. So I wrote um, a budget proposal for dev group for a kennel to increase funding for, um, you know, their force multipliers on the law enforcement side. And then I did um, some policy proposals regarding service dog policy, because there isn't really anything in governance when it comes to service dogs. And just honestly, through my publications in, in grad school and the interviews I was doing in grad school is how I landed a job in the service dog world. So I kind of just wrote papers on something I loved. And it kind of led me to the industry that ended up just hiring me before I even graduated. And I kind of never left. Huh. That's interesting. So then did you not know that that's kind of the world in which you wanted to live again, just happenstance walked into it? Um, as soon as I discovered that that world existed, I knew I wanted to be in it. I did not know in what capacity. So I wasn't like in school all of a sudden saying, oh my God, I want to found my organization. Like that is literally an accident um, or a one up, like saying, I think we can do it better. But other than that, like I knew I wanted to be in this field with veterans and dogs. I didn't know in what capacity, but honestly, as it's shaped out with the different roles I've held, mm-hmm. um, you know, working from building programs out to actually being the person that handles the applications for people who want a service dog, meaning I've read those stories when people are writing their narrative. Um, so I've seen a lot of the different avenues of it and it's bittersweet. It's a very tragic industry. We're always working against the clock. I mean, you know, they always flaunt different suicide numbers in front of you. And a lot of those are very real and we've lost people we were working with or um, you know, so it's, it's always at our forefront. So it's a love hate relationship and I'm sure it's not meant to be forever. Cause I don't think anybody can sustain this emotional involvement forever, sure. but I wouldn't change it for the world. I love it. Yeah. So on the topic of the role that you play now and leashes of valor, do you mind talking about what it looks like and what you guys are doing? Not at all. So, um, I'm one of three co-founders and we all worked at other organizations together. So we've actually worked together for shit, nine years, nine years now. So, I mean, my CEO is basically my work husband is what we call him at this point. (laughs) And um, so we provide service dogs at no cost, meaning we take dogs from shelters or from breeders donated and we have them for almost two years in order to custom train them to the person's specific disabilities. If that is nightmare interruption, medication retrieval, um, there's certain self-soothing behaviors. uh, When people have certain anxiety, sometimes you start doing things like leg tapping or playing with like your wedding band. They're almost like when a child is sucking their thumb. I'm not making fun of it, but it's a way for your body to soothe itself before the anxiety gets too high. Sure. So we teach the dog to interrupt that specific behavior, which allows the person to almost take what I call a fake smoke break. Meaning you go out to give the dog a break without anybody making it. Oh my God, are you okay? Are you having a PTSD episode? Um, 
it's a really great cover story to just go out with a dog and recalibrate before things get too much. So it allows you just to experience a lot more of life when the dog is alerting on certain things and interrupting them. Um, and then on the side, we now created LOV Blue where we're starting to put therapy dogs in police departments, um, specifically more internally than externally. So while I do love the outward facing aspect that a therapy dog does for a community, and it's a huge um, bridge the gap tool for law enforcement officers. Uh, I'm more worried about what it's doing internally with uh, mental health in the law enforcement community and first responders because the suicide rate there is higher than it is with veterans at this point. Um, so that's kind of like my baby on the side is our LOB Blue program. But ultimately we're just working on creating the human animal bond and making sure um, people have access to the right resources to get to the next step. Yeah. So how, uh, what's the process look like for applying and then creating kind of that human animal bond? So the process is a lot of times chicken and egg, meaning you need to fill out an actual application. That's kind of like match.com because I am really looking for like, what's your life like if you are active and like in the woods, the dog needs to be able to go with you. If you are watching judge Judy and picking your belly button every day, <laughs> And the dog needs to be chill on the couch, right? So the dog needs to be custom trained and selected for your life. If you have small children, if you have cats, um, if you live on a farm or in the city. And then also the, the nuances of what's specifically going on with you. Meaning, you know, do you have dexterity issues? Sometimes people have physical impairments. The dog can't walk on a certain side. For example, you have fine motor skill issues. You can't put a, a lead um, on the, on the collar, for example. So there's little nuances we need to know and then big nuances. And then we either already have a dog that would work for that applicant. And then I custom train it to those specific nuances. If I don't have a dog already in the program, cause I currently have 26 dogs actively training right now, and I'm about to go up to 32. Um, so if none of those are viable for that person who is a viable applicant, then I will start looking for a dog to train for that person. So it's a match.com trying to have the right person for the right dog and vice versa, and then matching all that up. So once we have all of that selected, meaning the person's done their application, they've given me their diagnosis and their DD-214, and I have the right dog, then we schedule you for what we call residential program, meaning you are brought out to Virginia for 10 days, and that's to do the whole train as you fight. Meaning I can't just hand you a leash and be like, go on your merry way. Like we're taking 10 days to actually teach you life with a new appendage, a dog is next mm -hmm. to you. You can't just hand somebody a wheelchair and be like, go on your merry way. So same thing here. You need to learn commands. You need to conduct yourself publicly with an animal. It's a huge responsibility. And also how is it going to help you? And then it's little things like practicing all those things, not in front of your family. So you don't feel like a failure or everybody's watching you when you go home. So right. we're going to put you in that 10 day baby boot camp. Where we're going to turn you into a mini dog handler in an environment where you can fail as much as you want. Ain't nobody judging you. But then when you go home, you at least look like a professional in front of your family. Yeah. Showtime. And you know what you're doing, you know, cause there's a lot of eyes on you. And that's a very uncomfortable thing when you have PTSD is to be the center of attention like that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then how long does it take for, let's say an individual, application is already submitted how long from the time uh it gets submitted to baby boot camp 
Um, it can be as fast as three to six months. And sometimes it can, if people are not out of the military yet, we won't actually entertain it until they have their command support because the okay. military is not down with service dogs. Um, so it also depends a little bit on their availability. And currently we're only doing two group classes a year and we're about to ramp to three a year. So it kind of has to work with their schedule. Okay. And if it doesn't, then we have to, we honestly make accommodations for anybody. Like we've had agency guys that really could only get four days off at a time. So we spaced it out over several weeks in four day increments to make it happen. Okay. Um, so we're, we're still small like that where we can make sure nobody falls through the cracks. And that's really what we aim to do. Okay. Okay. So then are you obviously targeting for um, law enforcement, military, um, and then your training dogs really to handle just about any type of trauma, anxiety, or are you specializing just in uh, like, I guess, PTSD, you said the nightmare interruption. I mean, is there different classifications that you're targeting? And I, I ask, cause I genuinely don't know how it works. Um, we try not to target specific classifications because most medical professionals are not very good at even classifying things properly. So <laughs> I currently don't necessarily rely on their input that much. Um, meaning you have to have a diagnosis of PTSD or an affiliated condition. Cause a lot of people have been kicked out of the military for, um, they called it depressive disorder at one point, which for a lot of people is still PTSD. So it's honestly looking at the collective package, but ideally you have to have a diagnosis of, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, or military sexual trauma. You have to have served after nine 11. Um, and ideally you have to have an honorable discharge. Uh, however, we will take into consideration um, appeals of bad, bad paper discharges because sometimes people are kicked out for the wrong reasons. So it's, it's not a finality. Okay. Okay. Then you guys are nonprofit, correct? Yes, we are completely funded by donations and we don't take government grants and we're heavily involved in research actually. Nice. Okay. So if people want to help get involved where do they go? How do they get, get a hold of you? We're on all the socials. Leashesofvalor.org is our website. Um, that's where we can take donations. We have some pretty dope merch and you can read a lot of our warrior stories if you want to know more about um, these dogs and where they end up going and you know what some of these people have been through in wanting to receive a dog. It's just really interesting to see the different walks of life. And on the socials, you can hit us up and follow all the awesome stories we do. Um, yeah. And ideally share the message so that people also know that we exist as a resource and that service dogs are something that can be of help for many. Denique, once again, thank you for taking the time to uh, share your story with me and what you're working on with Leashes of Valor. I will be sure to link uh, Leashes of Valor's website and Instagram in the episode description as well. So if all of you or any of you feel uh, the need to get connected in some way, shape or form or uh, want to help out or uh, feel like you need a service dog, uh, that way you can reach out and get connected with them. But otherwise, I hope you all have a wonderful week and we will catch you next time. Mm -hmm.